Welcome to this episode of Leaders Light the Path. The podcast is usually two minutes twice a week, but once again, we're going to invest a lot more time as we have another very special guest on the show. Kathy Latender is an organizational excellence advisor. By tapping into her own experience as a healthcare executive, she creates transformational experiences for her clients and catapults them to unprecedented levels of organizational excellence. She's a passionate agent of change, which was crucial for a bold move in 2020, when she decided to donate massive amounts of her time to enable healthcare organizations to make the leap from in-person to telehealth care. There's only a handful of persons, people who I know, who are as passionate, competent, and at the same time generous as Kathy is. It's an honor to have you on the show. Welcome, Kathy Latender. Wow, what an introduction. Thank you, Michael. Let me begin with that bold move that I just mentioned in the introduction. Um, and that happened shortly after we've met each other about a year ago. And you were in the midst of transforming your own business when suddenly that pandemic hit the globe. And to me, it felt like at that moment, you knew exactly what you needed to do which was focus less on yourself and your own business and focus on what the world needed most at that time. And you decided that the right thing to do would be to, to donate large amounts of your time pro bono in teaching organizations the procedures that they needed the most at that time. Could you tell us a little bit more about what that transformation was that you helped those organizations make, how the leap looked like and what enabled you to make those organizations see that and do implement them? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A year ago in March um, was quite a big shift for me in my, um, in my life and in my business. I uh, have a background in public health, but I've spent my whole career in healthcare administration, sort of in organizational leadership. Um, and then I'm an advisor to lots of organizations around organizational excellence. When the pandemic hit, most organizations were not talking about organizational excellence, of course. They were focused on how to just simply take care of patients who weren't showing up for care because they were afraid. They were afraid of coming in person for care. Um, and I knew um, that there was a tremendous amount of misinformation and lack of information out there. Um, for organizations to use to go from a largely in-person mode of healthcare delivery to a almost exclusive virtual care delivery. I was fortunate and am fortunate to be part of a consortium with about a dozen of actually the world's experts in telehealth. And so what I did, as you described, is I literally spent every waking minute helping this group of telehealth experts get the message out to the world um, through podcasts and webinars and call-in sessions that we held at all hours of the night um, with these experts. So my role was really sort of bringing them together, catalyzing the tremendous amount of information they had to share, 
and getting it out there into the world. Um, I In the month of March and April, I think we reached um, somewhere upwards of in the thousands of medical practices and providers. It's hard to know where that messaging went exactly because lots of it was recorded in the form of webinars and podcasts that just live on. Um, so it um, that was and is, um, I, I think, one of the things that changed for me um, a year ago was really generously sharing information with organizations that had never thought about how to do uh, virtual care as a major part of their way of taking care of patients. That, that's an interesting point that, that I was actually wondering about. Um, the, the medical industry, as at least as I understand it, is a highly formalized and structured business, which, which is a good thing because, I mean, we are trusting the procedures to be in place so that they take the best possible care of our health. But last last year, the situation was that there probably wasn't just the time for the, the these highly structured processes and and the, these highly formalized procedures and, and an industry which is used to 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 following procedures needed to move fast and and how did you manage to get them moving um it's interesting um a lot of people in the healthcare industry found that they just had a tremendous amount of time on their hands because patients weren't showing up they simply weren't there I remember um, a client I was working with and my colleague Christian was working with and literally um, on a Wednesday morning, the medical director walked into a meeting and said, the waiting room is empty at 10 o'clock on a Wednesday. What can we do? Um, and by Friday and that, at that medical practice, they had trained up um, dozens of medical providers in order to make this shift. Now, many organizations who didn't um, tap into expertise simply focused on the technology. Telehealth is, the last part about telehealth is about the technology. Um, and so there's many organizations that attempted to make this change to virtual care by focusing solely on technology. The real um, essence of doing telehealth well is about focusing on the workflows and provider training and patient support. Um, uh, thinking about this as a clinical service offering, so having the doctors involved in the workflow design, these are all the parts that make telehealth work well. And I think this year has really um, shown a light on the organizations that simply approach telehealth from a tech-only point of view. And they're the ones that are saying, we're going to give that up as soon as possible, versus the organization that saw this as a way to, to provide extraordinary health care, not just as a stopgap measure. So yes, they stood up the technology quickly, but they quickly added the workflow design and the patient support and the check-ins with patients prior and after the telehealth visits. And so importantly, helping the doctors and the nurses feel comfortable on camera um, to st 
still make a meaningful connection with patients. Yeah, that, that, that's an important factor because th that's probably a, a point that's often underappreciated in the work of doctors, um, that, that communication um, is a huge part of their job. And, and, and the way they communicate with their patients um, is a huge building block in, in how, how patients um, find the trust in the doctors and in their care, um, which gets a lot harder I mean, in a time where everyone is a bit uncertain because nobody knows what, what the pandemic will bring long term, but also in that new form of interaction where we don't sit in the same room, but the, where the doctor is just um, an image on my computer or even on my phone. How can that, that trust relationship be transferred in that new environment, that, that unusual way of making patient care happen? There's a couple of couple of parts that come to that. I mean, one is addressing the concerns of the physicians um, upfront, acknowledging that this is different, and helping to support them to make this transition through personalized individual coaching and training. It, I mean, it's it's 15 to 30 minutes of spending the time to help them to understand the importance of occasionally looking into the camera, um, you know, taking the time for that personal conversation before and after the visit, um, all of those pieces um, supporting the providers to understand how to take what they're incredibly good at and do it in a virtual fashion. Um, again, organizations um, that just quickly made this transition without listening to physician concerns, without providing training, it's not too late. Um, these are many of the organizations that my colleagues are working with now to really optimize, to circle back, to say, yes, we started this quickly, but here's how we can now formalize and um, make you more comfortable. The third part that's, uh, that I would mention is around the patient piece. Organizations that have done this well don't expect the physician to troubleshoot the tech issues that a patient might experience getting onto the telehealth visit. So having staff that is in advance of the appointment reaching out to the patient, making sure the patient is in has good lighting and has a good um, connection and they try it out in advance. We call it the tech check, but getting all of that set before the visit so that the physician just walks in the room, if you will. The patient is there. The patient is comfortable. The patient has worked through these challenges. Um, I, I can remember a physician group we were working with and the, the doctor um, saying to us that in her organization, they were expecting the doctors to do all that tech troubleshooting, not a good use of their skill set, and yeah. um, and just creates anxiety at the start of that visit. It takes away that relationship-based care. 
Yeah, you're painting that really vividly, that shift from, from a technology problem to a problem that actually sees the humans using that technology, sees the, the, the needs um, of the doctors, sees the patient that's faced with, with, with a different and, and probably difficult environment for them, sees the staff and, and the organizational procedures that are required to make that system run smoothly in a time and environment where everything else isn't going smoothly. Empathy mm. seems, seems to play a major role in, in the consulting that you are doing in that area. Absolutely. And um, my, my colleague, Christian, who um, I collaborate with on, on many projects, um, you know, he, he, he talks about um, how this is really about change management. It's helping the staff and the physicians and the patients to work through this major change, this major overhaul of healthcare delivery. Um, and I believe this pendulum will swing back again where the really high-performing healthcare organizations will find a really critical blend of in-person and virtual care. Um, they won't go back to the old ways because they've seen the benefits um, for their patients um, to be able to do a, a virtual visit for certain types of care. For instance, the no-show rate, you know, a lot of medical appointments, there's a pretty high no-show rate, patients that don't show up for the appointment. Well, you can imagine the no-show rates for virtual visits is remarkably lower because now I don't have to make arrangements for childcare and leave work and drive, you know, 30 minutes each way, either in a busy city or across um, the rural America, um, right? I can, my, my visit is the visit, 15 minutes, not a two-hour endeavor for me as the patient. Absolutely. There seems to be lots of benefits and, and um, it seems that, that we're not going back to where we were before, but in, in sort of hybrid world. Um, you mentioned high performing healthcare organization. Could you define that a little bit more? What, what, what makes a healthcare organization a high performing one? Yeah. So when I, so my work in organizational excellence, this is really the realm that I've worked in for the last number of decades. You know, to me, a high-performing organization understands who their customer is and understands that customer extremely well. And their work focuses on providing the greatest benefit to their customers. So they're outward-looking, not inward-looking. High-performing organizations also are those that when they set plans or set priorities, they consistently implement them. Right? There's so many organizations that develop plans and some small fraction of those plans ever come to fruition. High-performing organizations set a plan, they execute it, and they watch the results. They see it in the numbers. And I would say the third hallmark of a high-performing organization is one that knows with metrics, knows with numbers how well they're doing. Right? It's not just what do I think we should do, what do I, um, where do I 
think we should go, but they are fact-based in setting priorities, in monitoring results, and ensuring plans and improvements lead to actual change in those key metrics. Those are a few of the hallmarks of high-performing organizations. And again, coming back to um, whether it's implementing telehealth or completely changing your organizational leadership structure or um, designing and implementing a new service, high-performing organizations hit the mark on, on all these all these aspects. I, I guess it's quite easy to see how in chaotic times, and, and I guess much of last year qualifies pretty much as chaotic times, how those principles of organizational excellence that, that you've mentioned, the focus on the customer, what, what does the customer need, particularly in that difficult times, a meticulous focus on the priority and the capability of to, to, to be able to, to measure how we're doing and, and, and what we need to change to, to make the, the best possible service. How, how organizations who have that in place are much better positioned to, um, to face those difficult times. But not all were. Um, and, and a lot of organizations didn't have those practices in place. Um, could you probably give some hints or tips or um, a few thoughts on, on some, some techniques or effective steps, so sort of the low-hanging fruits that, that an organization can take to, to better prepare themselves for times like these or deal with the situation um, when it comes up? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think first and foremost is um, taking the time to reflect and learn um, from what just happened and, and then implementing, integrating, um, I'll call it discipline, disciplined approaches in the organization going forward. My favorite client has been a client of mine for eight years, the CEO. I mean, in this past year, they have implemented more of their strategic priorities in half the time. So they have already fully accomplished their year's worth of action items at an accelerated pace. You know, many organizations that I talk to, like they put everything on the back burner. This CEO had the process in place, had his, his leadership team fully aligned, has uh, managers and leaders at all levels fully understanding how to develop plans and implement plans and has measurements in place. Like all of these pieces, they had been working to put that in place. From last March until now, the amount of strategic implementation that this agency has been able to accomplish, it's, it's mind boggling. Yeah. And so when we were meeting in November, instead of saying, oh my gosh, should we take a break? Their entire leadership team says, Well, what can we accomplish in the next six months, in the next year? Just yeah. saying that, you know, um, we've got all the building blocks. We've got measurement. We've got leaders who know how to plan and implement. We continue to support them. We continue to prioritize. We continue to paint a path forward about where we're headed. That, that, other, that's an other interesting... leaders, yeah, kind of said, oh my gosh, it's a crisis. Let's go into crisis management mode. Not the CEO. 
Yeah, that's an interesting connection that you draw by to, to painting the path because that's what I was was about to ask. I mean, I, I, without knowing that CEO and that particular person, just from from listening to you, I, I just suppose that the way he's managed to focus his organization in in that direction wasn't exactly by telling everything what to, everyone what to do because he was the know-it-all CEO who commanded his team and, and it was also also wasn't by providing incentives um, that, that motive tried to motivate the team but I believe that or, or I suppose that that he managed to to light that path so that that everyone in that organization was aligned on that mission and knew themselves what to do without the CEO having to tell everyone what to do. What, what, what role does, does that attitude play in, in that organization? Oh, oh, I mean, you're absolutely spot on. Um, he simply became the cheerleader this year because there was such clarity of if we're going to, this is a mental health agency, if we're going to continue to reach our clients and our patients, um, we all know what to do, right? Um, it wasn't a, uh, there was no need for um, a command and control structure at all, right? Because they were clear about the need for continuing extraordinary care to their clients. The clinicians, the counselors, the support staff, um, really led the charge. He simply removed the barriers. Um, he simply allocated funding when they asked for, um, you know, we have this particular patient population that telehealth isn't working for. And um, he went out and applied for grant funding um, and brought in um, some simple solutions by listening to some barriers um, that were preventing some clients from being able to access services. So he was, had really, the path was clear um, and he just kept shining a light forward. Because um, in a crisis, there are some people that do become paralyzed. And so um, sort of watching and you know, continuing to signal, no, this is the right thing to do. This is still where we're headed full speed ahead um, and just removing roadblocks on the path that, that really became, yeah. it, it yeah, became his, his focus. And where did that clarity come from that, that, that was suddenly there or was, was there at the right time? I think this is an organization um, like many organizations I work with who, who spend the time to ensure that they're, clear about where they're headed and they reevaluate that routinely and, and they they do that through strategic planning um usually um but organizations for whom strategic planning or planning of any sort is just a simply a an exercise and something that sits on the shelf you know that doesn't create clarity but a robust process that creates the environment where the senior leadership can debate and arrive at a common direction, that paints, that paints the path. Um, 
and that it doesn't that doesn't come through one planning cycle. It doesn't come through one retreat. It comes through the hard work of the senior leadership team debating and choosing both what we're going to do and what we're not going to do. And it's also not coming from a marketing agency that just gives you and hands you over sort of your vision and mission mission statement that somehow is supposed to just make it clear. It has to come from inside. And that is, if I listen correctly here to, to what you say, that isn't just luxury time because you've, you've seen the proof how taking that time to actually reflect and taking that time repeatedly and reflecting upon whether we are still headed in the right direction, whether that is, is um, helping you in critical times, in difficult times, to, to be able to, to even accelerate, as, as I learned from, from, from that example of yours, because you've not, not, not just let the urgent hunt you in the times where, where there was no urgency um, and, and just let the important stuff being done so that you can focus on the urgent when it is actually urgent. Absolutely. I, I have this graphic that I use um, with, um, with organizations that I work with and, and this particular CEO always has it right over his shoulder on his bulletin board. And it talks about this graphic shows in high performing organization how leaders spend their time. And in high-performing organizations, senior leaders spend about 30%, one-third of their time on strategic thinking and execution. Not the norm, um, but it, um, it, it's not an activity to do occasionally. It's... Um, It's a, it's a hallmark of high-performing organizations. May, may I shift that back or circle that back to your own situation? Because that certainly was a huge strategic shift that, that you were taking for mm. yourself. Uh, and it came out of at least what felt for me like total clarity about what you do. Um, and, and I was wondering whether there was some whether you, you can pinpoint that, 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 that situation. Was there some, some inciting incident that suddenly made you realize um, that that's where you're headed and that's where you must go? Or, or was that a process? And, and, and how did that clarity that, that made you so confident in that path, where did that come from for you? Mm, wow, that's a question. Um, It, it, a bunch of things just came together as we were in the pandemic. I was, as you said, working on making some changes in my consulting business, sort of redefining my, um, my business. And all of a sudden, I found that the world was in a crisis. And My background in public health combined with my hands-on experience as a healthcare administrator and my access to clients who were just confused as to what to do next. I, 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 it just clicked for me. All of these parts of my life are coming together at this moment of time to redefine um, how to spend my time. And um, 
I used to say on these call-in forms that we had, I, I don't know that all of this pro bono work will ever um, be returned to me in any monetary sense. I measure my success in number of lives saved. And it just was that clear for me. Um, you know, people's lives were at stake. And I had the combination of these experiences in my life where I, I just knew that I could do something different um, to save lives. I remember this one evening, it was about nine o'clock at night, and we were doing one of these call-in sessions. I had four of my colleagues on the call, and there was the CEO of um, seven um, OBGYN practices in the Midwestern United States. And we did one of these pro bono call-in sessions, and at the end, we were going around asking if folks had questions, and he held up this notepad. And he said, after this one hour on the call, I know what to do to keep the pregnant moms safe. And I just had tears streaming down my face. I was so glad we had all these little small Zoom boxes um, so that people couldn't see. Um, we, we never worked with him directly, but to think that in one hour, because of these free call-in sessions, he now had a plan out of how to keep these pregnant moms safe, like to me, that was, that was, it just motivated me to keep going. And what a, what a reward that was. I mean, we, we never know what will come back, but, but as I told you previously, I'm, I'm a big believer in karma in the sense that the more we give, the more will come back to you in whatever way and what, whatever unexpected and surprising ways and detours, but, but it, but, but it will, but, but, but anyway, were there, were there, moments of doubt for you or resistance that, 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 that tried you to, to, to hide from, from that work or focus on, on what, what you were actually working for or, or questioning whether you're even entitled for that sort of work? No, no, I never, I never had doubts. Um, I mean, the only doubts came in is, you know, all my client, all my paid client work went away. Right. And so I, it, I just wasn't focused on that. You know, organizations weren't hosting in-person strategy sessions and leadership training events, right? So I just had all this time uh, because organizations, many were putting things on the back burner. And uh, so I never had a doubt in terms of how to spend my time and energy. Um, And you're right. I, I knew, I know the, the, the karma from that work will, will come back in some way, in some form or fashion. Um, but no, I, I never doubted it was the right thing to do. Um, and what a, what a great example don't. that is for, for, for a leader who lights the path, who just sees that there is an opportunity to lead and even a necessity to lead. Um, and that the things that, that I'm capable of doing are exactly the things that, that people need at that exact moment of time. Let me, let me close with, with one uh, question that I'm really curious about, um, and, and that is, what was a leader that lighted the path for you, and in what way would that have been? Mm. Yeah. So I think of a physician leader 
who's really lighted the path for me. This is a uh, physician that I've known for 25 years. And he is a leader who is constantly looking out into the future. And he has this incredible ability to see things years before they materialize. And most people can't follow where he's going because he's looking, he can see things um, that, and he describes them to people in ways that they just don't see that coming to fruition. But he's a leader for me who I always stay close to. Um, we have stayed, um, had, had, had many successful endeavors together um, in many parts of my career. Uh, because he's always innovating. He's always asking what if. He's always seeing possibilities um, well before other people see them. Um, and so he's a leader that lights the path for me and has really um, been a light for many people within the community where he works. That's truly inspirational. Thank you so much. It was a real honor to talk to you and to um, for um, to let us in into this exciting journey that you've been onto in the last year, lighting the path for so many organizations um, in their journey to 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 making the leap from in person to telehealth in so in such a difficult situation and and times where uncertainty plays a major role and makes these even more difficult than it would have been in, in, in less troubled times. It's really been a pleasure. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Michael. If you liked this episode, please share it with someone who needs to hear this and consider subscribing to my blog at leaderslightthepath.com. Mm -hmm.